You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Here are your hosts, Jay Fennell and Paul Wilkinson. Hello again, Life Group Leaders, and welcome to the Life Group Leader Podcast. And we're excited that you're tuning in this week as we uh, take a look at the Living Sin Curriculum Lesson Number 10, which is entitled Words and Deeds. Or actually, deeds and words, I think, is the correct the, the correct order there. Uh, anyway, um, we are uh, continuing this study, and we're going to be taking a look at Second Timothy chapter three, verses fourteen through seventeen, uh, and, and unpack a few things, maybe highlight a few points that you might want to make uh, in your uh, lesson time, whenever that is, on campus or off. I'm here with Paul Wilkinson, the resident Dr. Paul. Hmm. Paul, glad to have you with us. Yeah, glad to be here. Hey, group leaders, hope you're well. Um, a few things before we get started uh, that I want to kind of update you on is, um, first of all, I want to thank you for praying. Last week was Vacation Bible School, and we had well over a 1,000 children here on campus, and it was a great week of, of a lot of a lot of ministry, a lot of conversation with with kids and with parents, and you know, it's just a tremendous, tremendous chance for us to to minister to kids and families and from all over our community. And uh, so it was a good good week. Kudos to the children's ministry staff and and all the work that they did to, to pull it off. But um, uh, not quite sure yet how many children made decisions for Christ, and we're still tallying all that up. But uh, we know that it would be, that a lot of fruit was was manifest in the lives of kids this week, and not only folks or kids that made decisions this week, but we know that as a result of the in of the um, in um, investment that our leaders have made in, in your prayers, we know that the fruit will continue to be um, born in their lives um, in weeks to come. Yeah, and a lot of these kids brought friends, unbelieving friends, uh, friends from other. Uh, traditions that we would say are less than biblical and it's a really incredible thing that they've put themselves out there like that and uh, just seeking seeking to know Jesus is a really convicting week. That's right. So it was a good week. Thank you for your involvement in that either directly by being here or through prayers. Uh, so thanks. I also want to remind you about the uh, August 13th is a big day. Sunday, August 13th. Uh, a lot of elements happened in that day. Number one is the rollout of the new curriculum entitled Spiritual Leadership. We've mentioned it a number of times on the podcast, previous previous episodes, but uh, it's going to be a great, great lesson time. Jeff Orge, who is president of a seminary, of a Baptist seminary, Golden... It's the Golden Gate Seminary. Golden Gate Seminary. They just moved out of San Francisco. Yeah, in California. Um, and so... Uh, some really good content there to, to talk about and to teach in, in life groups. And uh, just a call to, to be spiritual leaders uh, in various aspects of your lives. So I think it's going to really resonate with our people well because we have, a, we have a leadership culture here. We've got a lot of folks in high levels of leadership in business and, and elsewhere. And so these things could be very, very practical and helpful to those to those folks. And so we're excited about that. It's uh so that day, there's a rollout for the curriculum, and as well as Group Connect. And some of you are aware of Group Connect. We kind of do a groups fair. And uh, we'll have all this information um, rolling out to you here in the next number of weeks as we get closer. It's a little bit early for that now, I think. You've got a, probably too many things on your on your minds and on your calendars to can begin thinking about that 
right now. But as we get closer to those rollout dates and, and, and those things, we want to give you all the information that you need in order to mobilize your class and get them ready uh, to, to reach new people and to connect with new with, with visitors, uh, potential prospects for your class. Anything on those things, Paul, that you can think of? No, I think that covers it. All right. Well, as we as we move into the lesson time today, we're again uh, on Chapter 10 in the Living Scent book. And uh, the background passage is 2 Timothy. The focal passage is 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. And what I want to do to kind of begin our time together today is to, uh, I'm going to read the scripture uh, first, but then we're going to be talking about some things that you maybe, maybe have never really thought of or some phrases you've never thought of before. I think one of the things that, that has been interesting about this about this uh, series, this curriculum, is there's some phrases in here that I've never really contemplated, I've never heard before. But they do give some language to some things that are really important for us as believers. And two of those things that we're going to be talking about a little bit is gospel fluency and gospel translation. And we're going to, we'll unpack some of that a little bit later. But let me first read and then we'll move into it. So it begins... 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 17. I'm going to be reading out of the New International Version uh, this week. It says, Paul's writing to his protege, disciple Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That passage of Scripture, I'm sure, is very familiar to you. You've probably studied it or taught it many times in the past. Uh, Paul, initial thoughts, observations, uh, just on the surface of things as you take a look at that as that passage. I guess it's just a, a powerful text biblically. It defends the authority of Scripture, talking about Scripture being God-breathed, but also the necessity of understanding the Word and internalizing the Word for our good works and our Christian living. So it's just a great couple of verses to elevate the significance of the Word of God for the people of God. So Jason Dukes, the writer of this curriculum, uses terms like gospel fluency and gospel translation. And if you know Jason and you've spoken with him about you know, evangelism or about missional living or about gospel or any of those things, inevitably these words are going to come out of his mouth uh, because they are very much a part of who he is as a minister of the gospel. Uh, this term gospel fluency has become more and more prominent, I guess, in evangelicalism over the recent recent years. There's actually a book written by Jeff Vanderstelt entitled Gospel Fluency. Uh, Paul, if you had to um, define it in your terms, how would you say, well, let's, let's first talk about fluency. Mm-hmm. When you think about fluency, Paul, what do you think about? Yeah, and I think that's going to be the task in your life groups this week, is that these terms, fluency and translation, are not strange or foreign terms to us we use them a lot and we all know what they mean but it's a little bit strange and unassuming to see them attached to the word gospel and i think that's what jason's bringing uh bringing to light for us so when i think of fluency and i think jason gave this a couple of chapters ago he talked about learning french and um how he would 
He knew a lot of it from studying it. He knew how to conjugate the verbs. He knew how to make the sentences, but he didn't think that way. There was always a process he went through. Here's the, here's the English word for me. And he had to take a minute and then he was able to articulate um, the French terms for himself. It wasn't natural. He didn't think in those terms. He didn't naturally speak in those terms. But when he would go spend time in France, or I think in Quebec, speaking French-Canadian there, after a few weeks, he would, would just naturally be speaking in French again because he was immersed in a culture of French speaking. And that's what we want for the gospel, and that's what we want life groups to be, a place where there's so much gospel spoken, Jesus is just the normal conversation of the day in our life groups, that these things don't become something we have to think about for a minute um, evaluate and then say, okay, here, here's where it is in my life. It just becomes an intuitive sort of thing where we immediately understand and respond to the spirits convicting of the truth of the gospel into our lives. So natural, natural intuition or something like that. Yeah. And there's so many examples in our own lives daily where we would know, where we would say, hey, we're fluent in this thing. And the reason we're fluent with it is because it's second nature to us. Yeah, and I would, I would argue in each of your careers, we could say you're probably fluent in that, in the language of your career and the tasks and the disciplines that you're all in and make money from. I would argue you're fluent in each of those as experts. And what does that look like for the gospel? Yeah, what does that look like for biblical things? That's right. right. And, you know, for, for me, I think, I think about driving a car. You know, when we first learned to drive, there was... Every little detail we paid attention to, and we had to think about everything. Oops, I'm stopped at a stoplight. I need to turn on my left blinker and make sure that I roll out 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock position on the steering wheel and all these things. And and now, you know, now that you've been driving for many years, those things come natural to you, second nature. You don't really necessarily think to put on your blinker when you're stopped at a stop sign anymore because it becomes so natural and so intuitive to you because you've got all this experience built up. Uh, you, you've immersed yourself in driving. Same can be true with any sports that you played growing up or even now, any hobbies that you have. The more we do it, the more we immerse ourselves in the daily, the daily rhythms of those things, the more we become fluent in those things, right? Yeah, that's great. I like all those examples. I really like the driving example because we all do that daily yeah. for the most part. And so it's, it's, Then the question becomes, how do we, as Christ followers, live and become fluent in the gospel? How do we become fluent in Scripture enough to where it oozes out of us? Um, Dallas Willard says, and Steve Layton also uses this language a lot. Steve is our discipleship minister. Many of you know him. He'll say, where the words and deeds of Jesus naturally flow out of us, where we live, work, and play. Uh, and all the, you know, the areas and, and, the, and the places that God um, takes us and has us living. Um, and that requires, Paul used the word immersion. And I think that's the key word, is immersing yourself in those areas of growth where you can truly become fluent. Paul, talked to us, why would, when it comes to living sin, why is gospel fluency or the words and deeds of Jesus flowing naturally out of us important as it relates to living in a sent way. Uh, because, because these things will become internalized to us so that we're such that in our daily life and in our daily interactions with people, most of us have maybe a wide circle of people that we engage with, but maybe a smaller circle of people that we influence. How is it 
how can it become the case that we can speak gospel into their lives? And we, it has to be so internalized and so natural for us that we are quickly able to relate it there in the moment. So like your driving example, it doesn't become, well, all right, I need to, I need to pop my left blinker now so that this person um, understands what I'm doing. You know, when you're talking to the atheist, it's not, okay, they just made a comment about morality. Well, let me think back to my scriptures. Is there something in there uh, that, that might talk about God as the grounding of morality or, or, or God drives us to good works? It just, just would be a natural thing because it's how we think mm-hmm. so that we immediately respond with the truths of the gospel. Yeah, that's right. And I think that when you take a look at this passage of scripture in focus today, Second uh, Timothy 14 through 17 and chapter 3, I think Paul is alluding to this sort of this sort of living when he's encouraging Timothy. He said, "But as for you," says to Timothy, "continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know that the more you do it, uh, you know, staying in the scriptures as you have from infancy until now, they will make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ." So there's this this encouragement from Paul to Timothy, his protege. To continue in the scriptures, continue learning, continue growing, because you become more proficient, more fluent, more useful, more fruitful for God's kingdom. And then he kind of gives you, talks you, talks in verse 16 about the value of scripture for that learning and growing process. So our, our job is, as followers of Jesus, as we think about also this calling on our lives to live sin, is to immerse ourselves in God's word. Mm-hmm. Immerse ourselves in the Word of God so that our faith grows, so that our knowledge of Him grows, uh, so that our experience grows, so we begin to become more and more sensitive to God's Spirit uh, in us and through us and around us, working also in the lives of people, that we just naturally are oozing the gospel through the way we live and through the things that we say. Yeah, and I think that word natural or intuition is a really important idea. Uh, psychologists use a similar idea when talking about uh, these these developmental stages, and they go they go from a scale of um, unconscious incompetence to unconscious competence, which they would call you go from wrong intuition to right intuition. So unconscious competence is that uh, when something becomes second nature to us, um, maybe maybe distinct from habit, but second nature from us, um, so much practice with a skill that it has become second nature and can be performed easily, again, like driving. The skill can be performed while executing another task, uh, although we ought not do it frequently, like driving. <laughs> we don't want to start texting and other things while we're driving. But the idea is that it's so innate and intuitive for us that it's just who we are. It's what we've become. So he mentions, so on page 102, he kind of talks to Jason, the, the writer, begins to talk a little, a little bit about gospel fluency, and you can read some of that in, in your preparation. But he also uses a uh, something that he calls gospel translation. I'm trying to find on which page he may have mentioned that. I don't know if it was a big subheading or not. But, um, but the idea of gospel translation is helping people to understand as we become fluent, you know, my French teacher in high school going on that, on that, um, metaphor, cause I took French in school as well, um, was fluent in French and her job was to help others 
that took her class to become fluent as well. And part of that process was translating. She would help us translate, help us to think in French and understand the nuance of the language and the building blocks of the language and conversational French and vocab. And all those things were helpful to us to learn and to, to grow in the language. So she was helping to translate and help us to understand what it is we were learning. And, and that's, that's similar, I think, to what we're talking about here in this chapter, in chapter 10, is we, as we become fluent, we help others become fluent as well. And that process of doing that is called gospel translation. We are helping to translate the gospel into their lives so that they understand what they're seeing and what they're hearing. When they look at our lives, when they look at the things that we say, as we are living for Christ, living with Christ, we are uh, being an example and we're showing them something. And we help our part of our job as followers of Christ and as someone who is called to make disciples of Jesus, we uh, help to translate what they're seeing, pointing them to Christ. And like fluency, translation is not a strange word. We just read a translation, the NIV translation of the Bible to you, and our people read it constantly. So the idea of translation is not a foreign idea. But again, it can be a little strange when we attach it to the idea of gospel. And so I think Jay spot on what we're saying and what Jason is saying is how do the daily events of our life, both the mundane events and the extraordinary events, relate to the gospel? So like I was mentioning earlier about the process of, okay, here's English word, go through the process, out pops the French word. That instead, because of our fluency, there's just an innate and immediate response to the activities of our life, of seeing the Holy Spirit at work in what we're doing, uh, in whatever sphere we're doing it in. So that when uh, maybe you talk to somebody who's having a rough go of it, um, maybe their bosses uh, came down on them hard about something and they're questioning identity. All right, well, now you're talking to your friend who may not be a believer and you say, oh, well, you know, in Christ, we have such and so identity, and you unpack the way that they were created for purpose, for meaning, uh, to be in proper relationship with Christ. Or another example is I challenged a guy in a small men's group I do that his busyness was his mission field. And so he was coaching a t-ball team, and to, to explain um, teamwork to these boys, he began unpacking the story of Nehemiah and how he got the Israelites together and started rebuilding the temple and rebuilt the temple ultimately. So it was just a natural thing for him to talk to these young boys with parents and unbelieving parents nearby and within earshot, and he's here using Nehemiah to talk about a daily or a concept that we all know both in our workplaces and our sports teams and whatever else, of teamwork. And so that would be an example of translation. Mm -hmm. That's good. On page 100, um, Jason Dukes writes this. He says, The gospel of Jesus does not always make sense to those who are searching. The gospel can be a foreign language that we understand and use as the, as the church, in quotations. But phrases and words common to us can be quite confusing to the unchurched. Furthermore, the cultural nuances and linguistic idioms of a Jewish rabbi who was the Son of God and the Redeemer of the world, must be considered also. Along with that, the cultural nuances and linguistic idioms of the searching person also must be considered. So, you know, people have different filters, and they have different experiences that make up who they are and and help and, and make up their worldview. And so, you know, there's so many different levels of communication and helping people understand things. 
sometimes you have to help people unlearn some things before they can truly learn some things. I mean, and that only comes with through relationship. That only comes through investing in a, a lost or searching person and helping to understand where they are and the things that they have learned and their experiences so that you are equipped to help them work through some of that to truly understand what the gospel is about. But that, again, requires fluency on our part to be able to not only be able to, um, you know, translate and understand what their, what their experience is, but also to be able to translate the gospel into that experience. So it's, it's not as easy as just, you know, step one, step two, step three, and voila, Christ follower. It's very much a process. It's very much can be muddy. It very much takes time. Uh, so. And the book Jay referenced earlier, Gospel Fluency, the first thing the guy recommends you do once you become a believer is you get into a community where gospel fluency and translation is happening, where gospel is just the common language of the people. And that's really what we strive for in our life groups. Paul, you said you wanted to mention something that that um, came on in, in terms of a, a question that some group members may have regarding this lesson, which came from 104 when Jason is kind of giving an acronym uh, to help kind of understand some things. And he uses one for the K under Make Sense, Kinetics of the Old Testament. Talk to us a little bit about some of your thoughts related to related to that. Yeah, so Jason's very careful to say that the God of the Old Testament does not change in becoming the God of the New Testament. Um, even within all of that, we wanted to provide you a little extra support if this question pops up, because I've had it as I've substituted and taught life groups, and you hear it apologetically all the time. Um, so even if your 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 membership of your life group don't think this way, I bet their children or their grandchildren have heard these sort of comments. Look at the wrath and look at the jealousy and the vengefulness of the God of the Old Testament. And that's just not Jesus. And they completely separate uh, the, the God of the New Testament manifested in Christ with the God of the Old Testament manifested through the relationships of Israel and his people. And I personally love this question because no question apologetically that I receive allows me to tee off on the gospel more than this one. So I crave it, and I, I pray that people ask me this more frequently. So what I generally say to them is something along these lines, is that when we do look at the Old Testament, we see a lot of wars, we see the conquest narratives as Joshua leads the Israelite people um, against all the pagans in the land of Canaan and the horrors that they were committing, lobbing babies and fires to Moloch and the temple prostitution and everything else. We see floods wiping out all of humanity except Noah and his family. Um, we see horror. I mean, we just preached on Judges a couple months ago, and boy, just the horror of the way people treat each other. And I was just reading Judges, second, I mean, Judges, second Judges. I was reading Second Kings about Elisha, and where he was praying that his companion's eyes be open to see all the angels supporting him. In the very next um, couple of paragraphs, as the king's walking along the wall, this woman's wailing, and the Syrians have cut off all supplies to the Israelites so that this woman made a deal with another woman that they would boil and eat their children in order to survive. And you just look at the horrors of the Old Testament and it's, it's, it's very, it's unreal. It's unreal what they endured. And then you come to the New Testament and you see the grace of Christ, turn the other cheek, Sermon on the Mount, the sacrifice on the cross and so forth. 
So here's where I bring it all together and I say all of that bloodshed, all of the wrath, jealousy, vengeance, all of the horrors of throwing your babies in fire pits or boiling your babies so that you don't starve, all of that is still present in the New Testament. But all of it, every single drop of it, is bound up in the person and work of Christ on the cross. And that is the good news. That's the essence of our gospel, is that all of that should still be present. But because Christ took it, we can now live with a freedom and a liberty to express the kingdom of God to the people that are lost and searching, desperate for identity and purpose. So the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament doesn't change. It's just that the Old Testament highlights just the significance and the magnitude of what Jesus endured in order that we be set free from bondage and our sin natures. Mm. Any other things that come to mind that, of questions that may be brought up related to uh, related to this lesson, do you think? Uh, Post-Enlightenment era, so I guess the late 1800s and all throughout the early 1900s, and it, again, it persists until modern times, is this idea of how can we trust the Bible? Isn't it just a bunch of guys writing their opinions of, how they related to God in their era. And so we get that in this text, that all scripture is is God-breathed. And so if I don't encourage you to chase that rabbit in your groups this week, but if it does come up, something like the validity of the gospel, how can we trust it? There's lots of archaeological evidence you can point to. Um, the uh, Apologetic Study Bible is a very good Bible with charts in the back. And we have at least one copy in our library here of archaeological finds. So uh, I would just bring up one or two examples. So for example, um, Sargon II is mentioned in our Old Testament as a Babylonian, um, I think he's Babylonian or Assyrian, but I want to say Babylonian king. No evidence of him existed for a very, very long time so that it was a laughing stock of the Old Testament. And then I think it was in the um, early, so the 30s or, or 40s, 1900s, the tomb of some king was found, and it just happened to be Sargon II. So now he is the king we know most about from um, ancient history. So and another example would be David, King David. There was no evidence that a King David ever existed until something like the 60s or 70s of the, of the 1900s. And then they found an inscription that a guy had taken over and um, conquered the Israelites, and he, he wrote in his, or had his people write an inscription on one of the stone gates leading into Israel that talks about overthrowing the sons of David. So there was no evidence for this um, archetype of king, the man after God's own heart, the type of Messiah who was to come. No evidence existed until we found it. So time after time after time again, the Bible has shown itself to be archaeologically sound. And then we look at the historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ and, and the New Testament texts all written, all written within 50 years of the events that they describe in the person and work of Jesus, and there's nothing like it in ancient history. So that at the end of the day, where we're pointing people is to say this apologetically. Either the Bible is what it says it is because of the times that it has shown up, the times that it has been faithful, and the recentness of when the writings came after the events they talk about, we either accept those as historically valid or we reject all of history. Those are really the only two live options. So again, I don't encourage you to chase that rabbit today, but I think we can just elevate a couple quick examples like that and say um, it's a it's an uphill battle if anybody wants to say the Bible is just some random book written by a bunch of guys. Mm -hmm. They got their work cut out for them. Yeah, and if you've got any, any questions, if you want to unpack that a little bit more, um, if you're, if you think that there, 
definitely will be somebody that will begin talking about the validity of Scripture or how do we know and how can we trust. And, you know, um, I, I would just suggest reaching out to Paul. He's got some resources for you that yeah. I think would be helpful. Call me or email me. I'm always game for those discussions. Yeah. And he wakes up in the morning hoping that he can talk about those sorts of things. I usually text Jay one apologetic argument every morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Uh, well, we're, you know, it's going to be a good good lesson this, this week. You know, things like gospel translation, gospel fluency, words like immersion are all really good words to unpack as we think about what it means to live sent today. Uh, so, you know, we're praying for you and we're, we're, we know that it's going to be a great, a great lesson this week. And we appreciate all that you do uh, to love your people well. To lead them as you do. So always know that Paul and I are here to help you in whatever we can do. Hope you have a great week, and we look forward to connecting with you next time.